Coming up on Philosophy Talk, altruism. Something very strange about this girl. What? She's too good. Too good. I mean, she's giving and caring and genuinely concerned about the welfare of others. I can't be with someone like that. Martin Luther King said, Every man must decide whether he will walk in the light of creative altruism or in the darkness of destructive selfishness. Ayn Rand said, If any civilization is to survive, it is the morality of altruism that men have to reject. Our guest is Jeff Schloss, chair of the biology department at Westmont College. Altruism, coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, altruism, from biology to psychology to morality. Yeah, from biology to psychology to morality, that's, that's part of the problem. It's become a very ambiguous term. Psychological altruism, that's the question. Do people behave out of concern for the well-being of others without regard to their own self-interest? The moral issue, should they? Then biologists use altruism to, to talk about genes of all things. Biological altruism refers to behavior that helps the survival of the species without the individual. It's when, when, the, when a member of the species does something to help, help his co-specific friends have more children, but doesn't help him have more children, doesn't get his genes out there. So that's an interesting concept. It's hard to see why, why there would be biological altruism. But what are these two forms of altruism supposed to have to do with each other? Well, it's a question of human nature, John. I mean, evolution designs human nature. Some people think that human beings are by nature selfish. We've got to tr be trained into things like altruism. But evolutionary biology and and psychology are beginning to challenge this idea. It turns out that evolution has hardwired altruistic behavior into many animals, including especially human beings. Yeah, but I think you're just uh, falling into this ambiguous mosh mixing is and ought, Ken. I mean, human al altruism, the morality of altruism, that's a fairly clear question. Do we and should we do things for other people at, at, at the expense of ourselves? But even if some animals have evolved to be altruistic in the biology sense, what does that have to do with human altruism being morally right or wrong? Biological altruism just is a challenge to the old selfish gene hypothesis. The uh, selfish gene hypothesis? What would that be? Well, that's the hypothesis that genes are solely in the business of replicating themselves and that an animal is basically the tool of its genes. So it, so it wouldn't do these things that help the genes of other animals. Uh, genes would just do whatever they have to do to get themselves reproduced as often as possible in subsequent generations. Well, that's a peculiar use of the word selfish. I mean, genes don't have a self. They don't have any self-consciousness. So they don't really have self-interest. So that doesn't make any yeah, sense. you're beginning to catch on, Ken. It's just weird. That's why biological altruism is different from psychological altruism and has nothing to do with morality. Richard Dawkins coined the phrase selfish gene as a metaphor. He was just trying to say that genes act as if they're totally self-centered. Well, 
Well, that does raise a question. If genes are so metaphorically selfish, how does even biological altruism evolve or happen? Well, it just turns out that things are a little more complicated than, than contemplated. Lots of organisms behave in ways that do, in fact, uh, deter their own chances for survival and, 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 and put their own genes at a disadvantage compared to others. For example, a vervet monkey will give an alarm call to warn other monkeys of the presence of predators, even though this attracts attention to itself, increasing its own chances of being attacked and killed. So now we've got the selfless gene hypothesis? Is that what I'm supposed to understand? Well, it's, it's really misleading to think of the genes as being selfish or not. It's the whole group or population. A group that contains some altruists will survive better as a group than a group that contains no altruists. Evolution, it turns out, can work on whole groups as a unit. That's called group selection can. Okay, I, I get it. I'm educated. But let's go back to this is-ought thing we were talking about. Isn't there a way to tie biological and psychological altruism together? I mean, we don't all have to be willing to die for our country, but some of us had better be. And now maybe that mechanism of group selection that you just talked about has helped shape the human psyche so that a lot of us will be altruistic in our psychological makeup enough to benefit the whole group. But but people don't just do what their genes tell them to do as if their genes were talking to them. People act on beliefs, desires, hopes, and fears, on conceptions and ideals of right and wrong. What's that got to do with evolution? Well, evolution designs human beings. It design, We're just biological organisms. Our brain is just another organ. So maybe it's likely, I think it's highly likely, that even our conception of right and wrong is a product of evolutionary forces. So I wouldn't be surprised to find a tendency toward altruistic thinking wired into our very neurons by that same mechanism of group selection that you just talked about. Would you be surprised? Oh, I, I wouldn't be surprised to find somebody issue a press release thing, saying they found it. But I'm really, I'm really not the man to answer the, these questions, Ken. Our, our guest is Jeffrey Schloss, is an expert on both biological and psychological altruism. And today we'll start our conversation by digging in with Professor Schloss deeper into questions of how does evolution explain altruism. Next, we'll ask exactly what biological altruism has to do with psychological altruism and the conceptions of altruism being right or wrong. And we'll close by examining how altruistic human beings are and should be. We want your input into this discussion, so write down this number, 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Polly Strikers, uncovers a curious case of altruism in a non-human animal. She files this report. Unless you're family, altruism is rare in the animal kingdom. Being selfish pays. Gerald Wilkinson is a biologist at the University of Maryland. He says scientists have long been looking for examples of altruism in non-human animals. Invariably, when people have gone out to look, particularly in cases like honeybees, but also in lots of other animals, and you ask, well, who is doing this uh, altruistic behavior and who are they doing it for? Invariably, they're closely related. But not all the time. Wilkinson says a form of altruism does exist in the animal kingdom. It's called reciprocal altruism, where one individual will help another and get repaid in the future, a kind of blank check. One place these checks get written is in the bat cave. To the Batmobile. If I was to pick a bat that was uh, warm and fuzzy and helpful, I would pick a vampire bat. It is, without question, the most helpful social, I would be the way I would describe it, bat that has been described. Turns out, vampire bats don't care if you're family. I learned that bats would only feed other bats that they had spent time with in the recent past. I mean, other people have referred to this as they were friends. And that 
was the best predictor of who would feed whom. It was better than how closely related the bats were. There are many reasons why a bat might miss a meal and need to ask another bat for a snack. Vampire bats are lunar-phobic and don't like to fly during full moon. They might be young and inexperienced at inflicting the trademark painless bite on an unsuspecting cow or horse. Whatever the reason, Wilkinson's research shows that vampire bats will die if they go without a blood meal for more than two nights in a row. Here's how it works. An individual that wants a blood meal will approach another and start to groom and then move on to actually lick at the lips of the other individual. You have to think about them hanging upside down while they're doing this. And if the um, potential donor is willing, then a regurgitation will occur that can last several minutes and pass several milliliters of blood, which by my calculations is more than enough to get the bat through the day and enable it to feed for the next night. This altruism only goes so far, however. Females help females, and males will sometimes help females. But no one helps male vampire bats who come and go and don't stay in the tight female social groups. I have seen males actually give females and give female offspring blood, but never the reverse. One possibility is that they're giving blood in order to gain access to females in order to gain access to mating. Poor male bats. Perhaps that's why they only live about half as long as females, who can live for up to 20 years. This sounds good if you're a female vampire bat, but is it really altruism? I think in the short term, it would have to qualify as altruism in that this animal could use that blood that it gives away for its own survival or possibly for its own offspring. But an individual that donates now is actually going to get repaid later. In my mind, in that sort of long-term sense, it is essentially selfish for the individual to participate in this exchange system. You'll have to decide for yourself if this is altruism. One thing's for certain. Forget a vampire bat being nice to you if you're an outsider. I've never been fed on by a vampire bat. I have been bitten handling them. And in that kind of situation, they don't bite painlessly. <laughs> they bite to hurt. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Polly Stryker. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.